Genesis 1 in your Bibles, and God bless you. Thank you for being here, and, and I hope you're here every week that you can possibly be, because these will be building line upon line, precept upon precept as we go through this great book. Verse 26, it says, And God said, Let us make man in our image. Notice the plural. Interesting, right? In fact, the name God, Elohim, we'll mention a moment ago, is a plural name, Elohim. So well, you can't, I had a high school teacher at Martin County High say, you can't mutter about the Trinity in the Old Testament. And I took our class, she said it for a whole class, and I said, I raised my hand, and I took her to this verse. And I said, not as the name plural, but he said, let us make man in our image. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over the earth, all the earth. And over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth, God gave dominion. That's why Brother Manus has two chickens in his freezer. Amen. (laughs) Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for your word, for your people. And for your church, and I just ask you'll help us to hear and heed what you, what you have to say in this great book. And in this day and age, Lord, perhaps more than any other, for us at least, we need these reminders. And I pray we will open our hearts to them with your help. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the things you may notice as we go through this series on foundations is that when it comes to the narratives and the details of the creation story, for example, we will never shy away from believing exactly what the Bible says, and literally. We just read that God created the first male, the first female, and earlier we read how he did it and when he did it, and soon we're going to even study why he did it. The question tonight is this, do you believe it? Do you believe what God says in his word about how and when He created man. Look at chapter 2 in verse 7. This gives sort of a summary. Verse 7 says, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Verse 21, same chapter. That says, And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And, of course, created the woman. Now, folks, here's a question. Adam and Eve in the garden. Is this literal? Or is it figurative? Is it historical? Or is it allegorical? Did God really create instantaneously a man named Adam and a woman named Eve? And thus do all humans... All human beings come from one couple. Well, obviously, universities, by the way, a lot of Christian universities, a lot of Christian publications would have our young people to believe that it doesn't really matter. That the whole idea is that just God created, God sort of provided, but how he did that is is negotiable. Some even say, well, there was an Adam and Eve, yes, but they're simply representative, and it's really just a story. It's a good story, sort of an allegory, 
And it's not that important how mankind really came about in the whole scheme of things. And here's the problem with that. In fact, this, beloved, is the huge problem with that. We're going to go through some scriptures. You'll see them on the screen real quick. And you'll get the whole idea. This is James chapter 3 and verse 9. Therewith, that is with your tongue, bless we God, even the Father, and therewith curse we men, which are made after the similitude of God. So here is, here is a New Testament text affirming that this doctrine that man is made after the similitude of God. 1 Timothy, I want you to look at that with me, would you? 1 Timothy 2, it'll be on the screen. Here's what it says in verse 13. For Adam was first formed, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the discretion. Now, why would Paul, writing to Timothy, a pastor, refer to the Old Testament Genesis story as literal and real and actual when applying a New Testament doctrine? 1 Corinthians chapter number 11. Notice what it says in verse 8. For the man is not of the woman, but the woman of the man. In other words, the man wasn't created out of the woman. The woman was created from the man. Remember the rib story? Prime rib. <laughs> verse 9. Neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. Go to Mark chapter 10. You'll see that up on your screen. And of course, these are the words of our Lord Jesus. They're in red on your screen. But from the beginning of the creation, this is Jesus speaking, God made them male and female. Then he goes on in verse 7. I'll just read it to you. He quotes Genesis 2. He quotes the definition of marriage that's in the beginning. It says, For this cause shall a man... Leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife, and so on. Now, wait a minute, folks. These verses alone, just these, are reason enough to dismiss any notion that the Genesis account is a myth or a story or an allegory. But that's not the main problem. The main problem is what the Bible teaches in places like Romans chapter 5. Look on the screen again, Romans 5. Verse 12, Wherefore, as by one man's sin entered the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Who's the one man that brought sin in the world? He's talking about Adam. Look at verse 14 on the screen. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, which is the figure of him that was to come. And then verse 18 on the screen. Therefore, as by the offense... Of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation. Even so, by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. 1 Corinthians 15.22 says, For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Now, beloved, do you realize, do you realize tonight that if there was no literal Adam, just like it's taught in the book of Genesis, if we did not fall 
in Adam as the Bible teaches, then neither can we be redeemed in Christ. In the New Testament, Jesus' position as the head of the redeemed parallels Adam's position as the head of the fallen, which simply means this. Everything in the Bible, everything that the Bible says about our salvation in Christ, we just sang, redeemed how I love to proclaim it. Those are meaningless, hollow words if Genesis is a myth. Because all of that hinges on the literal truth of what Genesis says about sin, about creation, and about the fall. So that now do you understand? Now do you understand why Satan hates this book? Why he hates the foundation of all other things? Now do you see why an illogical and unprovable theory is presented to our young people as scientific fact without any real pushback, any real uh, opposition. The entire motive behind evolution and those who came up with it. Darwin had a theology degree. He was an apostate. He had a theology degree. He was not a scientist. The entire pushback and all of that, the motive of that theory was simply to present an alternative to creation because there really wasn't one in that point. Not that intellectuals could embrace. And you know, if you think about it, folks, since Darwin, in the late 17th century, since that time, what else have they got? Evolution says man created God. There was no God. Just life forms came about randomly. You know the whole story. We're not going to go into that. And here we are. And somewhere along that evolutionary journey, man came up with the idea of God. But God's Word says, the Bible says, God created man. And only God can redeem man. So this is a satanic, we talked about this a few weeks ago, a satanically motivated thing. And it is a colossal mistake. It is, a foolish, and it is foolish and spiritually suicidal for Christian schools and Christian textbooks to try to reconcile the foundational truth written clearly and simply in the book of Genesis with scientific theories about the beginning of the universe. Jesus said, thy word is truth. The Bible's true. All of it's true. Their word is theories. You know, one of the things I... I now actually laugh at, and my eyes roll all the way in the back of my head as far as they can go, is whenever I hear any interview or even read, I'm reading and some scientist says, I'm a scientist. I only deal in facts. Now, how many of you have ever heard that? If you've been listening to TV the last three years, you've heard it many times. This was the mantra during the pandemic from scientists with the CDC and the World Health Organization. And they constantly said, we're scientists, we only deal with the facts. Not emotion, not politics, not feelings. I want to say this, and I want every young person here tonight to hear this. There is no greater canard in the world of academia than the myth of the unbiased scientist. It's a total myth. Just like, now, there may be a few who try really hard to be unbiased and just follow the evidence. 
But just like journalists, there's no such thing as any human being not having a bias. And especially after four years, eight years, ten years of close-minded indoctrination in one view. When so-called unbiased scientists, as they told us, I only deal with the facts, refuse to believe in chromosomes now. They did for hundreds and hundreds of years, or hundreds of years, and refuse to believe in obvious, simple biology when they invent brand new terms that never existed to claim that male and female, we just read the truth, but now they claim that male and female can fall into a spectrum. Polygender, pangender, agender, gender Q, poragender, lunagender, quantum gender. There are dozens of these. They keep adding more and more and more. Because here's, the, here's what they say now. This is supposedly science. Quote, gender is not binary, it's a spectrum. No, it is not. That is not science. That is not true, and it is definitely, interestingly enough, it's definitely not even evolution. It would be the opposite of evolution. And yet, you'll notice something. You will notice that it's evolutionists and scientists who are bowing down to that today. Now look, any scientist who claimed that it was necessary, absolutely necessary, to close down churches, but not riots in big cities with thousands of people and not marijuana shops, any scientist who claimed that you had to close down churches in order to slow down the pandemic is not unbiased. Right? Any scientist who cannot admit that that is a human being in that mother's womb. That's science. I mean, they will tell you that the turtle in the egg on the beach is a turtle, and you better not mess with it, or you'll get fined, because it's a turtle. So any scientist that does some sort of gymnastics and pretzeling of themselves intellectually to say, well, no, that's not, is not unbiased. There is only one reason to change biology and work it into social engineering so that nowadays you can reject male and female as fact and truth. And that is a rebellion against this book, God and His Word, because of what God and His Word says. The real line is this, let us break those bands. Let us break their bands asunder and cast their cords away from us. We don't want it. We don't want the restraints and the truth of this book. And of course, inevitably now, I'm on a soapbox for a minute, but I'll get back to this in a second. <laughs> but inevitably, we knew this would happen. They're starting to eat their own on this. Staunch, avowed feminist, J.K. Rowling. J.K. Rowling is now anathema, persona non grata. She is now hated and despised by the trans community simply because she cannot or will not deny obvious facts. Feminists, this week Billie Eilish, now I know some of you don't know who that is, but anybody in here under 30 I guess does, but Billie Eilish, this week, yesterday, day before yesterday, she lost 200,000 followers in one day, really in two hours. And do you know why? Now Billie Eilish 
was beloved by some in this country because she was, she was boyish, she was edgy, she appeared to be gender fluid, so people loved her and her weird music. I don't know why they love the music. It doesn't make sense to me anyway. But last week, she made the fatal mistake. You know what it was? Does anybody know? See it in the news? She wore a dress. She didn't just wear a dress. She wore a beautiful feminine dress and had a picture of it taken, and she put it on her social media. And for doing that, for that act of owning what she was born biologically, which is science, she has now received the worst kind of hate and vitriol from these so-called tolerant people. Now, to her credit, like Rowling, she shot back. She's called these people lunatics and fools. Those are her words. But guess, listen to this carefully, guess who some of these lunatics and fools are. Guess who some of these people are who called her out for being the woman of her birth? Scientists, biologists, university professors in particular. Now, I'm going to say it again. Young people hear this. The unbiased climatologist, it's a myth. The unbiased evolutionary scientist, that is a myth. The unbiased immunologist, myth. There are brilliant scientists, brilliant minds, right now in North Korea, who are helping Kim Jong-un develop weapons of mass destruction. They worship him. They're brilliant scientists. Does that make them unbiased? They are highly educated. I'm talking about Harvard and MIT educated scientists in red China right now who bow before that regime in their atheist mindset. Do you think they're unbiased? Like the Nazi brilliant scientists that they were and psychologists at Auschwitz and Nuremberg? And I'll say this go- the same thing goes for preachers. For priests, just because some man or a woman has a collar or just because they have a robe, it's no indication that they necessarily are sincere before God. Listen to this carefully. The real measure of truth, the real measure of reality and veracity is in this book. And by extension, faith in what it says and in the one who wrote this book. This is it. Now, Let's consider as an example just how foundational, just how key it is that an understanding of Genesis opens the door, really is the door, to understanding the entire plan of God for you and me, why we're here. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God ended his work which he had made, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had made. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because that in it he had rested from all his work which God created and made. Now, let me say this. It is one thing to look and to know that God instituted the Sabbath for the nation of Israel in Exodus chapter 20. But it is an entirely different matter to understand why he did that. To go back before that moment. What's the foundation for that? And again, as we have said, this book, Genesis, is the foundational book, not only of the Bible, but of our entire faith. It is the bedrock of all that we believe. We just sang about so much of it a moment ago. All that we believe about God, about the home, 
Government, life, death, salvation, eternity. And one small example of that has to do with the fact that after six days, God rested. (laughs) Nothing in the Bible is in the Bible randomly for accident. The word Sabbath means cessation of work. And you know, the fact that ten times in verses two and three, either the name of God or a reference to God is connected, mentioned in connection with the Sabbath, tells us that there's this must be a very deep spiritual significance to it. And there is. But you would never know that without the book of Genesis. And this is why Satan comes along. Always. I don't care what the issue is. If it's Adam and Eve being created, Adam first, Eve second. And if it's man shall leave his mother and father, they're going to attack that and attack the home and hate it. For that matter, if it's the Sabbath, he will try and come along and distort and destroy what's taught here, what the significance of it truly is. And I'll give you I'll give you a couple of examples. When God instituted the Sabbath as a day of rest. In Exodus chapter 20 for the nation, for a man, the Jews were supposed to see it as simply that. That in whatever way, and we'll get to that in a moment, whatever way God rested, man was supposed to honor that in his own economy now, right? But what happened? Well, folks, by the time Jesus came around, the Creator Himself, Jesus, came to this earth, the Creator. When He came down to this earth, the Sabbath had been distorted. Severely distorted into an intolerable burden on the people of God. For example... The leaders, the intelligentsia of the day, the smartest people in the room. The leaders conjured up the idea that, for example, to carry a loaf of bread from one person's house to another person's house was, quote, carrying a burden and you broke the Sabbath. Putting a fire out on a candle was, quote, work and you broke the Sabbath. If a mother picked up her her child, that was okay. But if the child, these are written in the law. If a child had a rock in his hand, nope. You lifted a burden and you broke the Sabbath. You could look into a mirror, but if you plucked a hair, a gray hair, which I plucked a lot, (laughs) then that was reaping. Reaping and you broke the Sabbath. These ridiculous regulations by man, line upon line, just page after page, could fill a library. So guess what? Jesus comes along, the Creator, and of course He did not follow these traditions. Your disciples didn't wash their hands. They were plucking the corn on the Sabbath. and Of course He didn't follow these ridiculous man-made things. The rest that God speaks about in Genesis isn't talking about him being weary or exhausted from work. Isaiah 40, 28 says, Hast thou not known, hast thou not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the Creator of the ends of the earth, fainteth not, neither is weary. God doesn't get tired. So if you're reading this, you're thinking, oh, well, God must have been tired after six days. You're missing the whole doctrine, the proof, the point. So then what is the rest that God is speaking of? Well, look at verse 1 again. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. 
In other words, creation was complete. The six days were, what's the word? Finished. And thus, having seen that it was all good and very good, God says, He didn't create anything on the seventh day. We mentioned this last week briefly. So that the rest is not from weariness. It's really a satisfaction. Completion of a perfect work. Verse 2. And on the seventh day, God ended his work, which he had made. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had made. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because that in it he had rested from all his work, which God created and had made. Now think back for a moment, would you? Remember when the Lord Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. What was finished? The atonement. Redemption. And because of that, the Bible teaches that if you're a believer tonight, we rest today. Not in a special day, not anymore, but in a person. We do not work for redemption. We rest in our redemption. Because all of the work has already been done and was finished on the cross. In fact, I want you to notice how God summarizes this creation in verse 4. Look at it, would you? These are the generations of the heavens and of the earth, when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. By the way, we mentioned redemption a moment ago, right? You'll notice in verse 4 that for the first time the Bible uses the word Jehovah. First time. The Lord God. You see that? That's Elohim, Jehovah. You see, in chapter 1 of Genesis, it was Elohim who created the heavens and the earth. This is the name for God that's found 2,700 times in the Bible. Here, you'll notice, in the review of this creation, we're introduced to the name Jehovah, Yahweh. This is the self-existent one. And it is always used in Scripture as God's covenant name with His creation. As Elohim, God put the worlds into space. As Jehovah, He put eternity into our hearts. So the only reason why this earth is the center of the universe, the only reason for that is because God made Adam and put him on this earth. That's the only reason. Look at verse 7. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living soul. You see, God did not rest. God was not satisfied with his work until man was created. And then we find the name Jehovah. It is a name of promise, of covenant, a name of grace. And that's why Genesis 1.1 says, God created the heavens and the earth in that order. But did you notice here? He says what? The last line of verse 4, the Lord God created the earth and the heavens. Now the earth is first. And for the very simple reason that as Redeemer, God's heart and God's focus is on this little planet, this tiny, tiny little dot speck in the vast universe. This one place where God himself, the creator, would come down in the form of flesh himself and the whole mystery of iniquity would be settled forever. In fact, let me ask you the question. Have you ever heard unbelievers? It's kind of a thing now you hear a lot. Elon's talking a lot about, you know, going to Mars and 
a lot of guys are talking about having to inhabit other planets because this one's going to be destroyed and there must be intelligent life. Although I heard Elon say the other day, he, now he doesn't believe there must be any other intelligent life. But have you ever heard unbelievers talk about the arrogance of mankind? Quote, unquote. To assume that he's the only intelligent life in this vast universe. They'll say it is impossible that this tiny speck of dust called Earth in the vast universe is all that there is. You ever heard that? Well, there really is a reason, there really is a reason why this teeny tiny little speck, this dot in the entire universe, is the only one with human life, with spirituality, with this intelligence, the ability to communicate with God. There is a reason why out of the billions of galaxies in the universe, this is where all the action is. Skip ahead for a moment, chapter 3. And look at this familiar verse, verse 15. We'll talk, you talk about foundations, and I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. And it, her seed, shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Now follow this carefully. The seed of a woman? Not the seed of a man? Already, in, in theology it's called the Proto-Evangelium, Already hinting at the virgin birth. Already. And of course, that seed would bruise the head of Satan. Not the arm, not the leg, not the heel, but the head. The coming of Christ, mentioned first, mentioned before the crucifixion, where Satan only bruises the heel of Jesus, shows that the triumph outshines the tragedy. And in fact, the cross... The bruising of the heel became the means by which Satan in this garden would suffer his death blow. And where does all of this occur? Where does all of this, this redemption, this plan, God himself, the creator working, where does it happen? Where does the battle take place? On this little tiny speck. And it is tiny. This teeny tiny little speck of dust called earth. Where God himself would come so that as a man, the very one Satan attacked would be the main means of Satan's defeat. You know, everybody's heard of Waterloo. And I don't mean the song by ABBA. Waterloo, da, da, da. No, not that one. Waterloo was always a tiny, microscopic little village that you can barely find on a map in Europe. But the name Waterloo now is known throughout history and throughout the world. And that's because it was there in that tiny, teeny little dot of a village. It was there at Waterloo in 1815 that the armies of Wellington defeated the armies of Napoleon and changed history forever. So that from that day forward, Waterloo assumed an importance in men's minds and thoughts that's far greater than, it, than its physical size would ever merit. Same thing happened with a little town called Bethlehem. So earth is but a tiny speck in space? Yeah. But it is here that Satan met his Waterloo. It is here that the mystery of iniquity is concluded. And yes, all of this the entire eternal plan of redemption 
is founded on the words and the works that God reveals to us in the very first pages, the very first verses of the Word of God. So Satan, who we'll see, rises up in the midst of this creation, hates this book, hates the truth of it, the veracity of it, and what it laid, the foundation that it laid for further doctrines of redemption. You destroy the book of Genesis, and you destroy the entire structure. Now, the good news is, the grass withereth, and the flower thereof fadeth away. But the word of the Lord endureth forever. You're not going to destroy the book of Genesis. And they've tried. The devil tried destroying the Bible. Then he tried to make fun of the Bible. And it goes on and it goes on. They're not going to destroy it. But that text that I just mentioned to you, the flower thereof fadeth away, but the word of the Lord endureth forever, Paul didn't stop there. I stopped mid-sentence. He said something else right after that. Because the very next line, which is critical, says, and this is the word by which the gospel is preached unto you. Everything hinges on whether or not this book is true. The gospel, salvation, why we're here tonight, the meaning of life, purpose. This is the word by which the gospel is preached. In other words, if there's no perfect, indestructible word, there's no gospel, there's no hope, there's no truth. And if you get it wrong here, if you get it wrong here, then the farther, it's like if, if I were to call up Brother Kevin and, and Danny, in fact, I'm going to do that. Come here, Kevin, come here, Danny. I didn't plan to do this, but I'm going to do it anyway. Run, Danny, run! All right, so these two young guys, come stand next to me, behind me, so I can talk in the mic. All right, these two guys, I mean, they're so much alike, right? <laughs> they both love basketball. Danny's better than Brother Kevin. Um, they're both members of this church. They both believe that Jesus died for our sins. I mean, I could list... A hundred things tonight, and you could do and say they're similar, 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 similar. But let's say they get it wrong on this. Just this. And so, just a little bit, he's that way, and he's that way. So that's, this is 2023. Now, take a couple steps. It's 2024. Go ahead that way, Danny, that way. 2025, keep going, keep going, keep stepping. 2026. You take two young people, I'm making Kevin a young person, whatever, bro. And, and they keep growing, keep going. Guys, just keep going to where you were. So that now when they're in college, they're, they're where, are you, where are you going, bro? <laughs> He'll never make it to college. <laughs> uh, thank you, buddy. You can go ahead and sit down. I'm just saying that because of the trajectory, you know, well, it doesn't matter what you believe. You know, some people believe it matters. Because down the road, they will be apostate. They won't believe the whole counsel of God. It matters what you believe about this book and the first words of this book called the book of Genesis. And God's people said, amen. amen. Father, we're thankful for this great plan of redemption. We're thankful for your word. And Lord, we will not, by your grace, with your help and by your mercy, we will not dismiss or be ashamed of what your word says about anything. Male and female created he them. We believe it.
We believe all of it. And we understand tonight that it is because of these truths and doctrines that we understand the rest of your glorious word and the glorious plan of redemption. And as we look in the future weeks on the fall of man and sin and what it really means, please enlighten our hearts again. And we'll praise you for how it increases our faith. In Jesus' precious name, amen. On behalf of everyone at Beacon Baptist Church, we thank you for joining us today. Our prayer is that your heart and life has been impacted through the biblical truths of this message. If you have questions or would like more information, please contact us through our website at beaconbaptistchurch.org. That's beaconbaptistchurch.org. May the Lord bless you.